0: for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward Destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting upon the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. To execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and, all, <clears throat> and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved. that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His Holy with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, partook of communion this morning, I pray that we that would continue and that uh, we could have fellowship with you this morning as we get into your word. Lord, that uh, we could... Go out of here this morning uh, with a new vision of what you have for us, our purpose. Especially during this time of year, I just pray for your anointing of your word on us today, Lord. That you would allow us to hear uh, exactly what we are that we need to hear this morning, Lord. We just thank you for uh, the blessings, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, for what you've done for us, and we just invite you now, in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, I don't want to get into a habit of doing all the one-chapter books. However, I might, you never know. But as we, as we look at Jude, I'm not going to finish it today, so I'll break my record of uh, completing a book a, a week. Uh, we'll take at least a couple of weeks as we take a look at Jude. And we're going to focus <clears throat> this morning on the first seven verses. Jude is, is given to us <clears throat> as a warning about make-believers. And, um, you know, I think some of the idea, the concept that, behind why, why is Jude challenging us to contend earnestly for the faith, And exactly what we did this morning is we took communion. Part of taking communion is the act of examining yourself, right? Uh, Scripture would tell us, examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. And so Jude gives us this this warning about what it is to be a pretender or a make-believer. If we looked at two categories, say there's believer and make-believer, there are those within the body who are who are true, who are real, who, who uh, serve uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. And then there are those that are make-believers, who, who maybe serve in name or, or have a uh, surface relationship but, or a surface uh, experience, but they're, they've never become real. And he's going to tell us how to tell. And the scary thing is, you know, when we look at the, the, the different uh, um, ways people look at the church, one of the things we see is that the church mirrors the world. Do you know that? What do I mean? The church mirrors the world. The divorce rate's the same in a church as it is in the world. The, the, the sexual immorality in the church is the same as it is in the world. These things ought not be so if we're real. And so Jude writes this, and, and his challenge to us is to contend earnestly for the faith. That we strive to, not to enter the relationship, but to uh, walk as good stewards who are faithful to the Lord, we we have this thing we we say around church. We we talk about the concept of being the 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 the, the first church of the broken, and I, I take a little bit of heat for it every once in a while. That um, that we want to move beyond the idea, and, and so I never want to move beyond the idea that I'm broken, because what I mean by I'm broken is that I need to. I need to rely completely on the Lord to do the things I need to do. That's what I mean by broken. When I say broken, I don't mean hopeless. When I say broken, I don't mean uh, we're, we're never able to achieve victory. That's not what I mean. I mean I can't achieve victory on my own. I mean I, I can't find the success I want alone. I must be linked with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I can go nowhere. I'm I'm left floundering in the mud and I have two choices. I can humbly come to the Lord and acknowledge, "Hey, I'm dirty and I need you to clean me. And I need you to keep me clean. And I need you to keep me strong so I don't get dirty again so that I can follow you." Or I can pretend to clean myself up on the outside and say it's good. One is a believer one Is a make believer. And that's kind of where Jude is, is focusing. That's where Jude is challenging us. So let's begin. He begins with this, a greeting Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So here's what we learned from that. This has to be a James everybody knows. Right? Because he just said, uh, I'm the brother of James. Like you should know who that is. Right? If, if, if you were. If you came to me and I said I'm I'm the I'm the brother of Jerry, none of you know who Jerry is because my brother Jerry has never been here. It it would not relate to you. So this James has to be somebody everybody knows, somebody that the church was very familiar with. And so this is what we learn we this is what we learn of this, this phrase. This is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James. James and Jude were both unbelievers until the resurrection of Christ. And so here's what I find important. When Jude introduces himself, and he's he's writing this letter to call people to contend for the faith to be real, and and a real believer committed to Jesus Christ, surrendered to him, he's calling them to this. He doesn't say, I'm the brother of Jesus. He doesn't go off the authority that maybe he could have, right? I mean, if you're going to name drop, I, why well, I drop James? I drop Jesus. No? But here's what he says about Jesus. I'm a servant. And the word he uses there is the word doulos, so it would be way better to say slave. It's not diakonos. It's not the, the idea of, of uh, some kind of... Uh, um, better servant. This is an abject slave. Someone who has, in essence, made the choice to give themselves a life of slavery for love of the master. And so he says, I'm a, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of apostles talk that way, right? Paul talks that way in every single epistle that Paul writes that he's not correcting people, where he needs to stand on his authority as an apostle. He begins the letter with Paul, Doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Bond servant. Here, Jude begins the same way, and then he doesn't name drop Jesus, he name drops James. So he lets you know that, yes, he's in the family uh, of Jesus, but, but he's linked to the family by way of unbelief in the Lord until a certain time in their life. And that actually helps us relate to him a little better. No? He's, we're able to relate to him because the rest of the Lord's brothers, James and the family, they all thought Jesus was crazy during his ministry. Right? Mark 3.21 says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So his brothers, his half brothers, they didn't believe. The family that he grew up in, they didn't believe he was who he said he was. John 7, verse 2 through 5 says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. <laughs> if you do these things, show yourself to the world. It says in verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. So they didn't believe. He's also reminding us of when they do come to faith. The Bible tells that James comes to faith after the resurrection. After Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, Scripture tells in 1 Corinthians 15.7 that he appeared to James. He went to his brother. He showed himself. After the resurrection, James becomes a pillar In the community and becomes a leader of the church of Jerusalem. We read about it in Acts chapter 12. It says, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. This is Peter. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Tell them about what happened. In Acts 15, it says, after they finished speaking, Paul, giving his defense for grace, after they finished speaking, James replied and said, Brothers, listen to me. So James is becoming a man of authority. In 21.18, it says, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. In Galatians 2.9, Paul says this, And when James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. So James becomes a pillar, writes a book we know. One of what we call the Catholic epistles or general epistles. They're not written to any church in particular. They're just written generally to the body of Christ. James and Jude, two brothers of the Lord. And as he writes this, who's he writing it to? Who is he who is he addressing in his letter in this general epistle? He's writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He's writing to the called, the beloved and the kept. He's writing to believers. Wherever they are. In fact, the idea of the called has become synonymous with being a Christian. It's, it's, that word is often translated called, often translated invited. It's, it's this idea. Revelation 19.9 says, write. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. book of Revelation talks about two suppers. Only one of them gets an invitation. The marriage supper of the Lamb, there's an invitation to that. Jesus told a parable, right, about a marriage feast, that the people who were invited didn't want to come. So that the owner of the feast said, Hey, I'm going to fill my halls, you go to highways and the byways, and you invite everyone you see so that this place is full. And so he went and invited and brought all those to the wedding feast. Now as the master of the feast is walking around in the feast, he comes upon a man who's not wearing a wedding garment. You guys remember the parable? And he says to the man with a wedding garment, How'd you get in here, friend? And the man had no answer. Because in order to enter the wedding feast, you have to be clothed. Now, the way they did a wedding feast, I've shared this with you guys before, the way they did a wedding feast, you came, you weren't expected like today. You know, if I say, I want you to be in my wedding, and you got to go rent a tux, you know, you got to be in the wedding. In those days, they provided all the garments. It was simple. It was a white robe. And you would come wearing whatever you had, you know, and you'd show up to the wedding feast. And right outside the wedding feast, before you entered in, would be this box, this this crate full of wedding garments. And all you had to do was put it on and you could come in. Jesus said, when the master found the man without the wedding garment, he threw him outside where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because why? We have to be clothed in Jesus Christ. We have to be clothed in him. My righteousness don't get me in. Your righteousness won't get you in. Only the righteousness of Christ and a life lived in dependency upon it gets us in. It's something that Jesus Christ provides for us, right? These are the called. These are ones who are loved of God. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is. Is love. Whoever abides in love. Abides in God. And God abides in him. Being beloved of God. Means we're in the love of God. Abiding in God, God abiding in us, this abiding relationship. This is something that the Lord (coughs) spoke of, of the nation of Israel. And In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why did God choose? It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. He chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's why the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Do you understand when he's talking about the nation of Israel, this is kind of an important important idea to grasp. When he's talking about the nation of Israel, he's saying this idea of chosen and loved is equal to say that you are chosen is to say that you are loved that the lord out of all the world chose the nation of israel to be the people through whom he revealed himself to the world what john 316 say everybody knows it right for god so what so god so loved the world Love is synonymous with chose. God is bestowing, God has chosen to reveal himself through the nation of Israel to the world. That the world might know him. So these are the called. The beloved of God. Those who stand in the love of God, experience the love of God, uh, because the Father has set his love upon them. And then the third thing, they're kept. They're kept. This is kind of an important concept for me, and I know a lot of people don't agree with me, and I've often said, I don't mind. People are welcome to be wrong. These are those who are called, beloved of the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Who's keeping them? Jesus told us. He said that we're in his hand, right? And no one can snatch you out of his hand, right? And he said, the father who is greater than I holds you in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. We're kept. The idea of being kept is this idea of, of God sustaining. It's, it is the flip side of the coin of dependency on the Lord. You get it? This is why it's so vital to be real and honest with God. You don't have to tell me anything, but you got to be honest with God, and you got to tell Him where it is that you're weak. He's not shocked by it. He already knew. You have to live in dependency on Him. Dependency, Lord, you got to get me through because he's the one who keeps me. I can't keep myself. If it has to depend on me, I'm hung. I know me. It depends on my dependency on him, being dependent on him. And that's what's going to enter us into this problem this struggle that they're having that they're having here in in the the jews writing about <clears throat> as we consider the idea kept the last thing i want to share on that idea is is the doxology it's my favorite doxology in all the bible if you've ever been to any service i do funeral service what have you this doxology often comes up says now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling That's kind of an important thing, no? Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But not only that, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Why? With great joy. It's not like he's bummed to do it. Like we think, you know, like when you get a phone call over and over and over again from the same guy needing help and you get bummed that they're calling and you stop picking up their phone. It's not like that. It's his joy to keep you and present you blameless before the glory of the Father. It's his joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. <laughs> we are kept. So what is it? Jude has a little prayer for, for those who read his book. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Mercy, peace, and love. This is important concepts and we're going to see it build as we work our way through. Now here's his purpose in writing. Beloved. Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he's thinking when he first sits down to write, you know, I want to write about how awesome salvation is and and all the things we experience. And he wants to and he wants to give a an exhortation, maybe a word of encouragement. He wants to spend some time talking about this idea. But as he was beginning to write, that's that's not how the Spirit led him. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Here's what he's saying. He wants us to contend. That word is agonatsomai. It's Jared loves that word. Where's Jared at? He's back with the kids, I think. I was going to make fun of him for a minute. It's no fun to make fun of him, and he's not here to hear it. Agonatsomai means to contend earnestly, to strive. It's, It's something that's used of a boxing match. When two guys face each other, or maybe you you watch UFC or whatever different sporting events where two teams or people are contending against one another for the title and the and the goal. And he's saying, I want you to do that, but I want you to do that for the faith. He wants us to contend for the faith. Here's what that means. The, that, that, that statement, the faith, means it means that there is a body of truth that is to be believed. That's what it means. It's it's not just random faith. It's not just faith, 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 faith. People talk about faith a lot, but it's not faith in faith that saves you. Faith doesn't do anything. James told us that, right? Faith, it's what, what is the object of your faith. What is the object of your faith? Is the object of your faith the church? Is the object of your faith yourself? Is the object of your faith something else? Or is the object of your faith the Lord Jesus Christ? Only one of those saves. Jesus saves, right? He's the object of our faith. So it's saying, look, we want to contend... We want to do battle. We want to we, we agonotomai. We want to contend earnestly for this body of truth that needs to be believed. It needs to be received. It needs to be acted upon. And this is this is where Jude's really getting into it. Not only is there a body of truth to be believed, which is called the faith, but it is final and authoritative. Those are two important concepts. This truth, which is to be believed, received, and acted upon, is final and authoritative. It was given once for all. There's nothing else coming. There's not a third testament. There's not another testament. There's not anything else. What was given was given once for all. Final And authoritative this body of truth which is to be believed, and who is it given to? It's been given according to the scripture, once for all delivered to the saints. This is given to believers. On a on a really focused scale, I would say that this body of truth, the faith, is the gospel. On a wider scale, I would say this body of truth which is to be received, believed, and acted upon is the word of God. That's what's been delivered to the saints through faithful men who wrote, penned the scripture, and delivered it to us once for all, received, delivered, To all the saints. Okay, so we have this body of faith we want to be focused on. It is final and authoritative. It's been delivered to the saints. So, what's the problem? Verse 4 For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So we, we've we got creepers and ungodly. What, are, what are, What's the idea of creepers? It's a w- strange word, no? I mean, we use it. Oh, I don't know if we use My wife uses it. Every once in a while she meets one and she goes, oh, that's a creeper. I don't know per- precisely what it is. I just hope I'm not one of those. <laughs> Doesn't seem good, right? So So we don't want to be a creeper. Well, what was a creeper? Here's, here's an example of a creeper. A creeper, biblically, was a group of people called the Judaizers. Judaizers were people who did not believe in the authority of the scripture. They They did not really uphold the the lordship of Jesus Christ, they had a different agenda and set of rules and their idea was to come into the church and sway everything that was going on into the church to begin to think like they thought. Scripture says that they crept in. In other words, they don't come in, you know, where everybody goes, oh, there's a creeper. No, they just look like the rest of us. They just look like the rest of us, but they've got a a different agenda. They have a different master. And so there are some things that that will stick out, some things that we can recognize. One of the things, he says, is they are ungodly. What does that mean? That means there's not a reflection of godliness in their life. Now, a reflection of godliness, I'm going to tell you, does not have anything to do with your outside. I have met some of the most godly people I've ever known to have tattoos from their earlobe to their ankle. Your outside has nothing to do with your godliness. Did you know Jesus said that? Jesus said, you know, eating with unwashed hands, that's not what defiles a man. He said, what defiles a man is not what comes from the outside. What did he say? What defiles a man is what is in his heart it's there already he's the cure for it we've already got the disease we can do a lot of things on the outside right and that's good i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that you're you're welcome to do make the outside any way you want you want a big temple get big you want a little temple get skinny You want a hairy temple? Grow hair. Get a beard. You know, we we approve of those here at Calvary Chapel Buell, by the way. But whatever you do on the outside, what we're talking about when we talk about ungodly is what's going on on the inside. See, it's hard to spot a wolf or a make-believer, right? Because the way they describe wolves is they're wolves in what? So they look like sheep. You get me? It's it, the ungodliness is something that comes out from the inside, and specifically how it comes out from the inside is two ways. Okay, he gives us two things in this verse: they, these ungodly people who pervert the grace of God and deny our Master and Lord Jesus. That's the two. That's how you know an ungodly person. Two ways: they pervert the grace of God. And use it for sensuality. They pervert grace and use it for license. Well, oh, God will forgive me. Doesn't really matter. I do whatever I want. You ever heard that? You know, maybe people never say it, but they live it, don't they? Well, one of the ways that you become a perverter, someone who uses grace for a license, is you deny. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? We, we, we're, we're so used to the idea that Lord is like his first name or something. Like you and I would say, Mr. We would say, Lord Jesus. Yes, I, 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 I love the Lord. Do you understand what that word means? Because Jude did. He said, I'm a slave to the Lord. What does that mean? What if the Lord gave a commandment? What if the Lord gave a commandment and that commandment said, thou shalt never wear blue? What if he gave that commandment? How would I know whether or not you are godly or ungodly? Well, a godly person doesn't need to know Why, or the justification, if the master says, don't wear blue, what do you do? It's not hard, is it? Well, I really like blue. That's not true, because I wear black all the time. But I really like blue. Does that make a difference? Now, it's just a a simple way to consider the commandments of the Lord, but, but if... We understand the grace of God. This is where this rub kind of takes place, guys. If we understand the grace of God, then we know God has grace for our brokenness. We're not perfect, right? But that grace is not a license to be imperfect, we understand there's these battles that happen all the time within the church about the difference between what does it mean to be saved by grace? To be saved by grace means I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I need to live a life dependent on the Lord and to the best of my ability being obedient to the Lord. And when I fall, I call upon the Lord for his forgiveness. That's different than somebody who says, it doesn't matter, God will forgive me. I've heard that a lot in counseling. I've heard it a lot in when people talk and when relationships are breaking and people are going two different ways. And, and, and I get it. You know, stuff happens in life. <clears throat> then I sit down and I say, Malachi says God hates divorce. That this is not, this is not God's desire. That, that there, there ought to be a willingness to try to figure it out. I'm not talking about extremes okay just talking in generalities man i had somebody tell me one time doesn't matter god will forgive me you sure where 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 does the bible say god has to forgive you you sure that's there is it like one of those ones that Benjamin Franklin said that everybody quotes all the time? God helps those who help themselves. The Bible says you and I have to forgive because we've been forgiven. Was the Bible ever say God has to? Presuming on the Lord's grace shows me something shows me ungodliness. It shows me a lack of surrender to the Lordship of Christ. No? And there's a lot of ways that that can filter into life. And and Jude's going to focus on those. He's going to focus on some of those ideas. But listen, the way we deny Jesus is not by speaking with our mouth. It's by living our life. If my life, the way I live it, denies Him, then... Perhaps I'm an ungodly person with no reflection of God's characteristics in my life. And the biggest lie I'm telling is to myself. So what do I do? Well, there's really good news in Scripture. Because Scripture tells us that when a man recognizes the truth, all he has to do is confess it call the name of the Lord. Or we can stand in our pride and say, nope, I'm okay. But I know where pride goes. The Lord says He will exalt the humbled and He will debase the proud. We want to be those who are are able to recognize if this is so. If it's not so, then we want to be able to understand that there are people like this in our midst. And what is it that that we ought to do? Well, here's what Jude does. He's going to give three warnings from history about judgment. He says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus... who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So we know the story of the Exodus, right? Here's a cool thing. Did you know that Jesus was there? Yeah, Paul told us that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They had a rock from whence came water. You remember? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, that rock is Christ. Other scripture and argumentation can be given that he is the, both the pillar of fire and the cloud in the day that, that led the children of Israel through. Scripture would tell us he was the voice of the bush that burnt. And Scripture tells us that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, John tells us that Isaiah rejoiced to see jesus it was him pretty wild bible says when this came when the when the exodus takes place god delivered all the people all the people who were there the big group of people right he delivered them he brought them out of bondage he showed all of them his miracles he had them all pass through the red sea right You guys, in 1 Corinthians 10 uses the same phraseology. He had them all pass through the sea, but they were not all believers. Some of them were make-believers. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You remember? Entire generation perishes. And the Lord says, look, he, he knows how. To reserve the ungodly for judgment. And that is what scripture teaches us that the ungodly have to look forward to. Those who are surrendered to Christ is not because they're better, or they're smarter, or they're prettier, or anything else. It's simply based on their dependence on the Lord. Either we're dependent on Him or we're not. And if we are, then we're believers. And if we're not, we're make-believe We're pretenders. And James is saying, man, brothers, we got to contend earnestly for this body of truth that needs to be believed. It's authoritative. It's something that we ought to follow. And so if I come up against one of the Lord's commands and I say, I don't really like that, it doesn't apply. This culture, its culture is not what governs the Word of God. The Word of God is what governs the culture. I'm just trying to tell you the truth between what's real and what's not. Not in in any way to put anybody down, but simply to say, look, if we're in that other camp, you don't got to stay there. You don't got to walk around as an unbeliever who says, 'I I don't really have to do what Jesus says. I don't really have to be obedient to him. I don't really have to follow him. He'll forgive me. I'm just going to turn a Bible around and put it in front of you and say, where does it say that? That's the distortion of our culture on the gospel message. The gospel message is I'm a wretch and I need saved. And Jesus Christ saves me. I'm broken. And I... I have no brokenness better than at Christmas than any other time of the year. Black Friday, where you can go out, sing Christmas carols, and punch your neighbor in the eye because he wants the Barbie that you're trying to get. What does that say? We well, here's our tendency, guys. We have a tendency to look at that person and say, "Well, I would never do that." Hogwash. Yeah, you would. all got that garbage in us that's what Jesus said it's in you already what defiles you is in you a life of dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ corrects that it's through him my brokenness is made whole it was by his stripes I am the word is healed but what it means is made whole I was broken and I'm missing pieces, but Jesus completes me. It's what the scripture is talking about. He makes me a better person who's able to love and forgive and to do the things that we ought to be doing, right? It's a dependency on him, not dependency on me. First example, he says, everybody walked through the Red Sea. Everybody came out of bondage, but everybody wasn't real. And the unbelievers <clears throat> later on were destroyed They died in the wilderness. Listen, Jude wants us to know, this warning is against a judgment, uh, 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 or this judgment is against um, an attitude of unbelief and rebellion against the Lord. A judgment against unbelief, and rebellion against the Lord. See, and the the Bible tells us that as those people came out, there was this fellow named Korah. You guys ever remember the story of Korah? Korah comes out and he says, you know, we didn't vote for you, Moses. Who said you should be in charge? We're going to start an impeachment. And we're going to do an impeachment on you. We're going to get rid of you. And Moses is a humble enough guy. He's like, all right, well, maybe God doesn't want me to do this no more. And actually, I would rather be away from all you people. <laughs> so they have a little contest. Who will the Lord choose? Remember, they put all their rods in the tabernacle. Which rod butted? Then he knew who God had chose. you think that would be the end, right? But that's not the end of the story. What happens? The ground opened up and swallowed Korah and all those who were in rebellion. And we back up and we go, there's certain things that happen in the Bible where you back up and go, whoa. And there's three of them we're going to talk about right now. There's more we'll talk about next week. You back up and you go, whoa. You see Ananias and Sapphira and they lie about what they gave to the Lord and boom, they're dead. Whoa, what's that about? Scripture says these things are given to you as a sign. What's the sign? The sign is not this. God will just forgive me. Is it? God has to forgive me. Really? There was judgment. Romans chapter 1 says that we are storing up wrath for the judgment of God. Meaning, we walk in disobedience and rebellion and unbelief, and we walk in disobedience, rebellion and unbelief, and we walk in disobedience, rebellion and unbelief, and we're storing up wrath for the day when God opens it up and says, judgment day. Now, those are sobering things, no? There's things that we that ought to cause us to go, whoa, whoa, what am I doing? What am I doing? Am I saying that I need to change what God's Word says, or am I allowing God's Word to change me? Am I standing in a position of unbelief? Well, wow, God doesn't really mean that. Most of our problems are not with the difficult passages, by the way. They're with the really easy ones. Or am I walking in belief? Am I walking not in rebellion? Well, God, He'll just forgive me. He'll just forgive me. I'll tell you this. The Bible tells us if you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, hold that thought. But if I say what I'm doing is not wrong, how do I get to this? If I say it's no big deal, how do I get to this confession? Confession means I I admit to God that what I did is wrong. Do you get it? And I got to get to that point for forgiveness. It's not. There's no automatic. There's no automatic. And our world right now is so upside down. Look, He's going to say not only these guys. <clears throat> better hurry up. We'll never get done. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So the second group is angels, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, there's a second temple period writing, uh, what would I call it? It's not scripture, it is uh, not a novel, it's like people writing their ideas about how they think all these things worked. It's called the book of First Enoch, Jude actually quotes out of that book, here in a little while, but first, Enoch and all the Jewish people at the time of Christ all believed Genesis 6 was talking about angels. So if you have a different view about Genesis 6 or you're wondering what in the world is he talking about, read Genesis 6. But the view of the day, of the time of Christ, of the rabbis, of the people throughout that time and according to the second temple period writing of First Enoch was that these were angels that did not Stay in their first abode. They didn't stay where they were designed to be. They didn't fulfill the purpose for which God created them. Rather, they came to earth. They were clothed in humanity. Uh, every, not every time we see an angel does he have wings and a big sword, right? Sometimes uh, Mary is at the tomb and she saw a man clothed in white. Just thought it was a man. But the other gospels would say he was an angel. An angel. Somehow, the angels clothed themselves in humanity, looked like a man, came down, did something with women, and it caused the judgment of God that we see in the flood in Genesis chapter 7. The point that he's making is these angels were made for a purpose. They did not fulfill their purpose. They rebelled against God. And they chose to do something different. And in some way... That is become an example of of sexual immorality. Hey, these guys did not stay where they ought to stay. These angels, or shining ones, are reserved in gloomy darkness. Those beings who once were in the presence of God, with God's light shining on them, and therefore they become what the Bible calls shining ones, these guys are now in darkness they're in darkness they were judged they're not the judgment is not finished they're awaiting final judgment chained together because abandoning what is right has consequences because god is still the lord of all the world so the first example the 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 people coming out of egypt there were believers and unbelievers Angels, there are elect and evil. Right? Do you know how to tell the difference between an elect and evil angel? They look different. One of them has a red pointy tail. Pitchfork, easy to tell, right? It's like, oh, the red one, that's the one. Don't listen to that one. No, what does the Bible say the angels look like? Yeah, wait a minute. Well, just, just as a for instance, what if what if a guy named Muhammad is sitting out in the field one day and he's thinking, man, I just I don't really know if I know how all this God stuff works. Man, I wish somebody would show up and tell me. What if a shining one came just like he said? Should you believe every shining one you see? What if the shining one gave him all the things he wrote down? Do you really believe they're not real? That they don't exist? That that hasn't happened before? Or that it can't happen again? Scripture tells us there are elect and evil angels. And evil evil angels leave the abode for which they were created, and they rebel against God, and they are judged. Right? These guys from Genesis 6 are in chains. You don't have to worry about them. They're not running around no more. They're in chains until the day of judgment. They're in chains until the Lord judges them. Those who transgress and sin will experience judgment is that the point? All these examples are the same. Well, what's our third example? Our final example for today, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same way as these angels, who did not keep their first abode but left, and as a result of their rebellion and disobedience against God, were reserved in judgment, in the same way Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality <coughs> and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Remember I told you there are things in the Bible that are just intended to be uh, a shocking warning, like Ananias and Sapphira, Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels in Genesis 6, flood of genesis 7 there are certain things that are laid out for us just designed for us to go what what was this all about what's going on what is happening the same two characteristics of Sodom and Gomorrah with the angels you know what the two characteristics are lust and pride you probably thought i was going to say something else huh lust and pride destroyed sodom and gomorrah lust and pride destroyed the angels Lust and pride destroyed the people that were gathered together with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Look, what's the difference with the lust was for? Lust for power. Lust for uh, something you should not have. Lust for something that is not okay to take. And pride that says, doesn't really matter what God said doesn't really matter what God said. Jude says, listen, I've written to you that you will know to contend earnestly for the faith. That there's a truth that's been delivered once and for all, final and authoritative, that is to be received, believed, and acted upon. And the way Jude's begins, just the beginning of the letter, but as we look at the beginning of the letter, what he's saying is, here's what we do. When we, when we talk about make believers, there are people who are driven by their lust and pride, and they look on the outside just like us, but they're ungodly because they're driven by their desires. They're not driven by God's. Do you know the scripture tells us that if you surrender yourself to the Lord, that he'll put his desires in you. But if you're not, then I'm driven by mine. And I can recognize in my own life, guys, I can recognize in my own life when I push the Lord off the throne and I climb back on, and I recognize my desires driving my day. What does it mean if I do that now, now now I've become a make-believer? No. No, because the difference between a make-believer is a make-believer doesn't care. He actually wants that state, excuses that state, continues to live in that state. A real believer recognizes that state and confesses, Lord, I'm wrong, forgive me. And God says, I will. Right? You get the difference? So isn't it kind of hard to say, I'm just going to do this and ask the Lord for forgiveness later. Man, those are scary words for me. Those are scary words. What would we rather do? We would rather say, you no, God, I want to be obedient to you. I want to follow you. I want to follow your direction. I submit myself to the word of truth. I'm going to contend earnestly for the faith, the body of truth you've delivered unto me. And this word of truth, it tells me to do certain things. And when I'm not doing them, God, then I want to confess those things, and I want to be forgiven those things, right? I want to admit that the things I'm doing wrong that are sinful, that I admit them to you, Lord, this is sinful, help me. Now I'm forgiven. That's different than, this isn't wrong, I can do whatever I want. Jude says, be careful. Make believers, true believers. Where am I? Who am I? Am I obedient to what the Lord says? Can the Lord say to me, you call me Lord because you do what I say. And when you don't, you ask me for help. You're humble, not proud, not arrogant. You're able to raise your hand and say, oh man, I'm a mess. God help me, right? You see, the difference is real believers live in the dependency Of Jesus Christ. I need him every day. Or I'm hung. I need him every moment. I am a wretch. I am a wicked man. I was a wicked husband. And human being. Before Jesus Christ. Now. Jesus Christ in me. Has made me new. Not what I was once. But the reason I'm not what I was once is because Jesus is in me. He's the hope of glory. Not myself. Him. Dependency on Him carries me through. It'll get you out of everything that you need to get out of if we can hear the words of Jude. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Father God, we lift this time to you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord Jesus, to <clears throat> study this body of truth that has been revealed once for all to the saints, that you're laying out for us. Hey, here's, here's the thing. Here's how we can recognize and Walk in the truth. In, the, in, in, in Ephesians, Paul says, brethren, walk in the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ said as he prayed the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man, Lord, we need to hold fast to your truth, to what the truth of the word of God says to me. And it says to me, in 1 Corinthians, it says that, that the sexually immoral, the homosexual, the drunkard, the reviler, the, 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 that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then it gives us word of hope. It says, And such were some of you. I don't have to wallow in my brokenness because Jesus Christ will set me free. I don't have to live without the strength to endure because Jesus Christ gives me the strength. I don't have to live with with the heaviness of knowing that I'm living a life or a lifestyle that is disobedient to the Word of God. I can lay it before my Lord and ask Him for victory. And such were some of you. But you've been justified. You've been sanctified. You've been glorified. See, Jesus Christ is able to make all the difference in the world, but He can't make difference to a make-believer, only to a real believer. Not to someone who says, God won't judge me, but to someone who recognizes, no, the Lord is the judge of all the living and the dead. And I need to commit myself to His mercy. I need to commit myself to His grace. I need to walk in obedience to Him and entrust Him to deliver me when I don't. Keep me from presumptuous sin, the Word declares. Keep me from sinning with a high hand, from declaring to the Lord, I don't care, this is right or wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. That's dependency on the Lord. Lord, keep me from it. But even as David walked in presumptuous sin. He said, there's no no sacrifice for this or else I would give it. What was the sacrifice that the Lord said? The Lord said, I want your broken heart. I want your contrite spirit. I want you in humility to say, oh, Lord, I messed up and I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? And God will forgive you. And God will establish you. But there's such a wide gap between the sorrow of David crying unto God for forgiveness and the attitude of some in the world today who just say it doesn't matter. I'll be okay. These are all stupid rules anyway. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth that you would grant us a spirit of discernment to recognize, to confess, to repent and to encourage others to do the same that we might walk in victory because the word of God declares that it is God's great joy, it is Jesus' great joy to Keep us from stumbling. It is His great joy to present us blameless. It is His great joy to glorify us together with Him before the Father. Because we in humility come. Man, God, be glorified as we, Your people, look to You in this attitude. And may You empower us to be what You're calling us to be.